Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. This week's guest is Tiffany Perkins Munn. Uh, she and I have, I'd say, come together through the internet. Every now and then you hear somebody and you just think, wow, this person's kind of amazing. They're speaking truth. Um, I attended the National Black MBA conference this year and she had a breakout room and we were talking about, um, you know, imposter syndrome. We were talking about, you know, how to get ahead in your career. And so based on the conversation that was happening in that room, I felt compelled to reach out to her afterwards because um, sometimes on these conferences, people get really, you know, quiet or they don't, they're just like, Oh, every, it just worked out for me. And you're like, that's not usually how it ever goes. Um, and so what I loved was your honesty and your transparency. And then in getting to know you, um, just your journey has been very interesting. Um, I think what initially stood out was the fact that you have leveraged a PhD in a way that some, somehow nobody maybe would have thought to do. Um, and I wanted to, you know, delve a little bit more into that. So I'm just happy to have you on today because, um, in addition to your, you know, I'd say background within, um, consumer analytics, uh, you know, research analytics, uh, in a lot of the financial services powerhouses within the New York city region, um, you've just done a lot of cool things. So Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for sharing. I am excited to talk to you because I, I think your journey is, is another unique one. So happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. All right. Um, so I want to jump right in and talk about your background because in preparing for today, you told me about how you know you grew up in a small town in Arkansas. And just having a population that kind of stays in one place, it's just everyone knows everybody, um, the history of segregation in this particular town, and just how your upbringing, I think, was formed around that, I think it's very, very uh, telling. So if you could talk to me about what it was like to grow up in that small town in Arkansas. Yeah, absolutely. So the little small town is actually called Forest City, Arkansas, and it was named after um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who, as it turns out, was a uh, grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. So that should give you an idea of the backdrop in which I went to school from second grade to through 12th grade until I left and went off to college. Um, this this backdrop was really infused through uh, housing segregation, 
you know, the way that we spent our time, the things we were able to do. Um, In fact, it wasn't until I graduated from high school in 1986, and it wasn't until we came back for our 10-year reunion in 1996 that I went to one of my friend's home, um, a white guy, and we were both marveling at the fact that we had considered ourselves friends all throughout high school, yet I had never been to his home before, and he had never been to mine. And I said, wow, you know, this is the first time I've been to your house. And he was like, yeah, my dad died. If my dad hadn't died, we wouldn't be able to have this party. And that was like 10 years after I had already graduated from high school, right? Um, So it was lots of things like that. Like even, you know, our, our prom, we had a black prom, we had a white prom. When we filled out the ballot for homecoming queen, we had to fill out a ballot that says, who do you want as the white homecoming queen? Who do you want as the black homecoming queen? Wow. So it was basically garden variety, black and white, not a lot of cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, national diversity, none of that. Um, one little, you know, uh, Latina family, uh, the, the Garzas, <laughs> and one little um, Jewish family, the Cohens. And um, everyone else was, was just black and white with, um, I, I think that Jim Crow uh, was gone, obviously, but still in effect. Yeah. So basically you're in a city that would be considered, you know, post-segregation, but it still feels very much like there's some unspoken rules here that we don't cross. Oh yeah. It's still very, very segregated. Um, When I was in school, I used to walk the halls to go to pick up hall. I was like a hall monitor pass. I'm a hall pass monitor. And we used to go, we, okay, this is before like automation, right? So we would go to each homeroom and pick up a pass that basically would identify people who were absent in that homeroom. And we'd gather those and take them to the main office. And somehow um, the person who worked in the main office heard that the, 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 the boy that um, I had this class with, because there were just two of us who did this, like we walked the hall together to pick up these passes. And thought something romantic was happening between us or heard that something romantic. I mean, we were just literally walking to pick up passes. And, you know, she called the secretary. I was I was um, the secretary of student council. So she called the teacher who was the head of student council and the teacher um, called the dean of schools. And it was like this big to do. And the dean of schools told the head of student council to tell me um, that we couldn't have any of that in our school. And they called, he was on the football team. They called him aside and told him that we couldn't have that kind of race mixing in the school. And we were both shocked. We were like, we were walking down the hall on campus, picking up hall passes, you know, like, like absentee ballots or whatever. We were not, um, romantically involved in any way. (laughs) Wow. Just right. goes to show when people want to make something happen and make up a story, they will make up a story. Um, yes. Wow. And so you said that this was like a small farming community and your family was a military family. Is that right? Well, so my, my, it was a small farming community. Most of the, a lot of the people there either worked on farms or owned farms. Um, it is very rural and agricultural. Um, this area. 
My father was in the military, but I actually grew up with my father's sister. So my father and mother were both in the military. My mother was in the Navy. My father was in the Army. They both traveled. I ended up with my father's family in Arkansas. Um, So yes, it was a military family, but I didn't move around like a military child because once my mom realized that we, they were both going to be moving around, uh, she decided that it probably would be best for me to be stationary. And the place where I landed was with my father's family, his sister, my grandmother, my great-grandmother in Forest City, Arkansas. Wow. So how did this community inform your ideas about race and class and gender? Um, and then once you kind of got out of that city, how did it also shape how you saw things going forward? Yeah. So it's really interesting because because I because my mom and my dad both lived elsewhere, I was always exposed to other cultures and other areas of the world, right? So um, I would go for summers and spend them in other places, in other cities, in other towns, in other countries. And, be, and because of that exposure, I knew from an early age that there, the world had so much more to offer and that Forest City, Arkansas wasn't a place where I was planning to stay. In fact, Arkansas wasn't even a place where I was planning to stay. So from early on, I knew that there was more. And, and I also figured out that while I grew up with um, people in Forest City, Arkansas, and I loved them all, and we were all like one big family because it's a small town, um, they weren't really my tribe. Like they didn't like the things I liked and they weren't interested in the things I was interested in. And I really needed to branch out to figure out where my people were and or who were the, where the people were who liked the things that I liked and wanted to do the things I wanted to do. You know, um, in Forest City, it was like, you're going to go off to college and you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor because that's kind of all we knew was you either go into law or you go into medicine and the plethora or the myriad of other occupations and, and careers that you could have, just we just didn't have the exposure to those to really know what those might be or what other career options you might consider. Um, so it was really through these summer engagements outside of Arkansas that I learned more about what was possible in the world, what other people were doing, um, what career opportunities there were, where people were who liked the things that I liked. Um, and you know, who I could connect with. Yeah. So then when you decided I got to get out of here, I'm going to go to college, leave the state, um, and you know, have now exposure to all of these things. What was that like for you? Just getting out there. Um, Refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) I was to be out of Arkansas. I can't even explain to you how happy I was. Um, because I knew, you know, it's not like I had you know, I think I have friends who are still there and they're still there and they love it there. And that's what they know. And that's what they love. Um, me at an early age, because I was exposed to something different. I was like, Oh, there are all these really cool people out in the world doing different things. And I should be, you know, figuring some of this out and being involved in different ways. So it was such an incredible relief, um, to go to Georgetown, which is where I went. And my best friend went to Howard, Um, So we were both there in that area together um, for those four years. And and it was it was amazing. It was wonderful. Um, Both campuses were great. And you really we we were both exposed to 
so many different people and, and Georgetown has a pretty, at the time anyway, had a pretty large international population. So in addition, you get um, exposure to the international students as well. And I made many friends and we had an Arkansas club. So when I was feeling like, oh, I miss Arkansas, I can just go to an Arkansas <laughs> club meeting, reconnect with my roots and get <laughs> and go back to Georgetown. <laughs> That's kind of fun. Wow. Okay. So I know you had some creative pursuits while you were in college doing acting and theater. Um, tell me about that because I, I think sometimes people feel like they've got to be super, super serious. Got to, you know, yeah. do something very, uh, you know, how is this going to translate into a job or how is this going to yeah. translate into, you know, your, your, and your I might have, yeah, I might have been like that, except we didn't have theater in my high school. Like, we literally didn't have theater. So I had never had exposure to theater before. Um, we had band. I was in the band. But, but just the whole concept of musical theater, um, I didn't get exposure to until I got to Georgetown. So then I thought, oh, this is an opportunity for me to do something really cool. And luckily, my family they weren't really that engaged with what I was doing. You know, they weren't like following me like, Oh, what, what, what's her major and what is she doing? And which classes are she, is she taking? They weren't following me like that. They were like, she's off at college at Georgetown and we see her when we see her um, or when I go home. And so it really gave me an opportunity to try lots of different things. Right. So I came in as a pre-med major and then I decided oh, that's interesting, but I sure would like to learn Spanish. So I started taking Spanish as a minor so I could become fluent in Spanish. And I thought, oh, I could also do theater. I didn't change my major to do theater, but I got really involved in theater um, and started doing theater a lot to the point where when I graduated, I actually wanted to do more theater and I moved to New York and, you know, to do more theater. But it was, to me, it was just an expression of, um, something I had always wanted to do, you know, it was a, a way for me to express myself in a way that I hadn't been given the opportunity as I was growing up or as I was when I was in high school. Cause I mean, maybe, you know, most kids, they do the high school plays and then they're like, okay, did that already. Um, and I didn't have that luxury because we didn't have plays in high school. Uh, so yeah, it was a great experience. And then you moved to New York, you pursued mm -hmm. acting, but then you, decide at some point to go back to school and yeah, start so, on a PhD program, which is like, I mean, who decides yeah. to do a PhD? I mean, <laughs> when it all comes down to it, I am from Arkansas and we believe in education. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so that's really the long and short of it because in, in retrospect, I realized I didn't give myself nearly enough time. You know, I worked for um, 40 Acres and a Mule as just like a little intern or something, which is Spike Lee's production company. Yeah. And I remember people telling me, like we did these, um, this series with uh, like Robert De Niro and a lot of the, you know, big, big name stars. And they would tell their stories about like Robert De Niro, I think said that he slept in a car for a while and he used to, sweep like the, the the step of someone's store so that they would give him like pocket change so that he could get something to eat right so it, listening to everyone's story this is what I'm thinking like oh my god there's this level of poverty 
and, you know, like being without things that you have to exist in in order to be, to get where, you know, to really like, you know, dedicate yourself to the craft. So I thought, okay, I can kind of do this. I'm doing social work. So I, I was actually started doing social work and I thought that gives me enough flexibility where I can go do my auditions and I can do my social work because that happens all day, obviously. So I did that for a while. And pretty much I said to myself, listen, Tiffany, you've got two years to become Halle Berry. And if you're not Halle Berry, you've got to go back to school. And don't ask me why I chose Halle Berry. I'm pretty sure I'm being critiqued right now by people like, <laughs> you know, well, like, why no, Halle? She is. She is. <laughs> She is. When you think of an actress who's been successful, who, you know, everybody loves it. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Right. I agree. Um, But I, I might, I might've in retrospect, I might've started somewhere else just so there, you know, to make it possibly attainable or something, you know? Um, But anyway, when the two years actually passed and I, felt like, so I had done a couple of commercials. I had done an off-Broadway play. Um, I think I was doing more theater than actually commercials or acting. And I mean, commercials or um, uh, movies. And so I, I had done a bit parts in movies and I thought, okay, well, I have to go back to school. So I went back um, to get my PhD. And it was always, I mean, I had my bachelor's, so and and since I was going into, uh, I had decided to go into psychology, it was pretty much a decision around how do I, do I need to go to get a master's or do I need to go get a PhD? And clearly with that degree, you need to get a PhD. And then at some point in the process, I decided, well, this is really a very data intensive degree and I should have a joint degree in statistics, which is what I ended up getting. Wow. So statistics and psychology, and you had an opportunity to think, okay, do I want to go down the road of academia? Because, you know, you can always become a professor, teach, publish, um, participate in grants and all of the things that professor life looks like. Uh, And then you could decide to, you know, in this case, take the corporate route or, or see what you can do with this um, in terms of a corporate organization. How did you kind of think through that process or was it more so like, let's try this? Well, when I was nearing the end of my PhD, I went to speak to one of my professors who basically said, um, because of this skill set, right? Basically, if you think about what I did, I had an applied statistics degree, which was all around how to use the practical application of statistics to solve like real world problems, like everyday problems that people may encounter. Um, And he said, oh, you could try market research because then you would get exposure to a lot of different industries and you might like one of them. And he also warned me, but it's going to be very, because you are a statistician, it's going to be very archaic for you because they are not as advanced in, in industry as we are in academia around statistics. Um, but you could always come back because I, at that point I was pretty well published. I had a number of articles, a couple of co-authored, a couple of um, book chapters. And, you know, I was just, I was developing a name for myself in the, in the academic world. Um, and I remember thinking, God, I just, 
I am not at all interested in the tenure wars. Like I can remember because I was very close with a number of my professors, just the process that they had to go through in order to try to get tenure. And it felt very political and challenging. And I thought, I am not, for, for the amount of money that they are going to pay me, I am just not interested in that kind of political warfare. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, I'll try this. And then, I, like he said, I could come back if I wanted. Um, so, so basically, I, that's what I did. I, I, I set about you know, to um, look for a role in industry. And then you found one and realized they do need this skill set. I am kind of a unicorn. This is really a new industry um, that's burgeoning within the corporate space. And I can really, I've got a lot of runway here. If it were, if it had happened that smoothly, I would have been so happy. But (laughs) But it it didn't happen that smoothly, but that's what it ended up turning into, right? It did turn into that, but it took me a long time to get there. Like I didn't go into the industry and think, wow, I have arrived. This is the place for me. I actually felt very unsure of myself. I had like imposter syndrome when I first entered financial services, right? So I actually did market research for several years. um, And he was right. I got exposure across a number of different industries. So um, telecom, automobile, single jet engine, that kind of thing, financial services, obviously. And I, um, the person who was running uh, the client feedback program at Morgan Stanley hired my firm to build out a global client feedback program for portfolio managers, traders, and analysts across the world who are clients of Morgan Stanley. And she decided at some point, so I did that. And then she decided at some point that she was going to do another role at Morgan Stanley. And she wanted me to come internal to run that program from the client side, which is how I ended up in financial services. And I did that, but because I entered that way and I didn't grow up through, I didn't come in through the ranks of, you know, this sort of traditional um, path. I I felt very unsure about, I didn't know the business that well. I wasn't sure where I fit in. They weren't really using client data like that, right? Because um, if you think about data as the flip side of a coin, There's the investment data on one side, and then there's client data on the other. And all financial services firms are good or better at the investment data side, right? Because that's the data that they use to um, build portfolios, do asset allocation, make investment decisions. And on the other side, there's the client data, which traditionally, and at this point, I've been all over the street on the buy side, sell side, and hedge funds, so I know this, but... It traditionally sits in a very disjointed way in the firm. Um, One group doesn't talk to the other group. So bringing all that data together doesn't typically happen seamlessly. Um, There's technology needs that have to be implemented in order to make it all work together. So that on, if you think back to this was 20 years ago, it was in a pretty bad state. And on top of that, I didn't really know what, you know, I, I had, didn't have a sense for where my skill set fit explicitly in this industry. So it took me a while to actually get to a place where I fully understood what the challenges of the business were and um, how to best sort of implement my skill set. Yeah. 
So let's talk about imposter syndrome for a second, because I think it is yeah. a rampant thing. Every, every, every black woman I know, every woman I know, uh, even some men who are willing to be open and admit that they're in rooms sometimes where they're like, why am I here? How did I get here? Yeah. Talk about, you know, how that was showing up for you and what you've learned to do to overcome it. Yeah, I think what it made me do was really question myself, second guess myself a lot, not stand in my power around my expertise. I had an expertise. I had, I was, I had a PhD in statistics, you know, and there were times because financial services is such a relationship driven, especially the more you, the further you get away from like a consumer and the more you get into the institutional spaces or the intermediated spaces. Um, it becomes even more high touch and white glove. And it really becomes more about your relationship with, you know, like a person, the salesperson's relationship with a client or the strategist's relationship with the client. Um, so as a result, I, you know, felt I, here I am, I'm a data person. This is a space that's not really using data. They're typically more anecdotal and anecdotally driven around how they make decisions. And I, wasn't comfortable enough yet to say, wait a second, you really should be using data in a more effective way. Like you should be using data to help inform those decisions instead of just putting your finger in the air or doing it the way it's been done or listening to one client and then imposing that on all clients because one client said it. So it took me a, it took me a while um, to really come to understand the business enough to realize what the challenges were across the street and then to insert myself and my expertise in a way where I could really own um, the knowledge that I had and, and use that knowledge to transform a business. Cause basically you're asking people to move from being, um, it's, you know, it's a change management exercise, right? So you're asking people to move from thinking in one way to thinking in another way, but you're basically changing the whole culture of a firm. And that takes time and you have to be powerful and empowered to do it. So at the, in the earlier parts of my career, when I didn't feel empowered to do that um, by myself or by others, by the way, because it's not like there were a lot of people who looked like me. And by look like me, I mean, not a lot of women, not a lot of African-American women, not even a lot of people in this Space where I where I was like working with data about uh, for clients and looking for practical application of that information in you know financial services answering financial services questions right so all of that was brand new and it it actually took me a while to get to a place where I knew what I was talking about I felt very comfortable with it and in fact I knew when people didn't know what they were talking about which was the really groundbreaking, you know, when you get to a point where you realize, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about and you can challenge that and then offer um, a different perspective. Yeah, no, that is so true. I think um, once you become an expert and you know, you have your stuff down, you know, your stuff backwards and forwards and can literally, it's like tea leaves. Like you just, you're like, "Mm, I'm seeing this. Yeah, this doesn't look right. I think we should be doing this instead. And here's why, and here's, here's the information that will explain to you why, um, that's it. Like nobody has to ask again. And, and that's why you're there. Like you're there because this is the information that we need. 
Um, so right. that's great. Um, you know, in terms of like, I know there was a point where you, you know, had to evaluate your uh, next steps because you had a life event with your partner that mm-hmm. kind of had you in a different spot for a little bit. And then you had to then decide, do I want to come back? Uh, I'm going to talk about this because I think when things happen to us, we have to make decisions, right? Quickly. Mm-hmm. And we can either mm-hmm. choose to stay the course and like whatever that looks like or make a totally different decision. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that and you know how you manage that and just what decisions came out of that life event? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in 2010, when I was working at a hedge fund, um, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So I think we found out about that in February of 2010. My daughter, who is now in the 11th grade at the time, was five years old. Um, and he had a battle with the cancer, meaning he was diagnosed. Um, they immediately, they caught it in time. It was on the tail of the pancreas. So they felt comfortable um, doing surgery to remove it from the tail of the pancreas. Um, and they did that surgery. They removed it from the tail. Um, unfortunately, though, it, ha- it after they did the surgery, it actually metastasized, and um, it was stage four. And so he, uh, we, when we learned about it in February, he actually passed away that same year in September of 2010. Wow. So at that juncture, my daughter, as I mentioned, was five. I was working on the street um, at a hedge fund. I was leaving my house early. I was coming home late. Um, And it was just, it's not like we have a lot of, first of all, I'm an only child, so I don't have any sisters and brothers around. Um, I have a a half-sister who lives in Arkansas, but I don't have anyone who's, you know, really around here. Um, So I didn't really have any help with my daughter. Um, I have an aunt who the father sister that I told you about that I grew up with, she actually was in the process of retiring and ended up moving here to help me with my daughter. So that was great. Um, but I also had to think about my, the mental health of my daughter, like how I wanted to make sure that she was, um, you know, that she was okay after her father passed, that she knew that she could, um, be happy. And I wanted her to be happy without feeling guilty. Sometimes kids take on guilt that they have nothing to do with. So in order to do that, I felt like it was important for me to be present, which meant that I had to leave my job um, and be in the house with her. And she was going off to, I think, kindergarten at that time or second grade uh, and really um, first grade, I think, and uh, being present for her and making sure that, you know, when she came home from school, I was there and that we could talk about it and um, you know, the National Cancer Society had some great uh, activities for kids whose parents had cancer where they could work through the through what was happening to them through art, which was great. So we did all of that. Um, and then I left for a while and I thought to myself, well, I have to do something. What should I do that where I would be uh, close by? And I decided that I, someone suggested that I speak to a franchise consultant. And I don't know how much you know about franchise consultants, but the consultant, um, you don't pay them. They get paid by the business that you choose. So whichever company that you choose to franchise with, they are the ones who pay the consultant. 
So you want a consultant with a lot of inventory um, so that they can introduce you to many different things to give you choices. And so um, I met with the franchise consultant and we had lots of discussions about things that I thought I wanted to do, but maybe didn't want to do things that I probably could do, but didn't think I wanted to do Um, things that would be more physical locations, um, things that would be more virtual locations and, you know, ways to think about that and what I should do um, in those cases. So she presented me with a lot of different options, things like uh, Dunkin' Donuts. And I thought to myself, what on earth am I going to do with the Dunkin' Donuts? Sit around eating donuts? I mean, that just didn't seem like it was going to work out well for me. Um, so I decided that's probably not something I'll do. Um, but they also, she also introduced me to Ducks and Hoods in, in, uh, in New Jersey and other states. Um, commercial kitchens have to be professionally cleaned a certain way. And so there's a franchise that sets out to um, do that service for, for um, commercial kitchens. And I thought, hmm. Probably not, because that doesn't sound nearly as romantic or exciting (laughs) as I need it to sound. It's not nearly glamorous enough. Um, So I didn't go with that one. And then she introduced a couple of other things, because I thought I wanted something where, obviously, I have a PhD. I could do, like, a tutoring service, like a wise aunt or um, something where I could really stay at home to do it. Uh, And then I decided, she introduced me to Title Boxing Club which is a fitness concept where you um, wrap your hands, you put on boxing gloves and you work out in a classroom setting with a trainer on a heavy bag. And it's, a, you know, it, it burns like you can burn up to a thousand calories in the 60 minutes or in the hour that you're doing this exercise. And I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. This is like something new, a brand new set of people, a new experience, plus it's fitness related. Um, so I, you know, at the very least I'll be working in a gym so I could probably spend some time using the gym. And, um, so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up opening a, uh, title boxing club in Princeton and, um, yeah. And I had it for, for five years. Yeah. I mean, this is wild. <laughs> Just open a gym folks. I love it. I mean, I think this is, I, what I love about this is my life has changed. So my work has to change. I want to show up in a certain way for my family. Um, I could press through burnout. It's still not work out and it just be catastrophic at the end. Or I can get very real with myself about, you know, this is what I want my future to look like. This is what I want my life to look like. And so I have to change something about what's happening here. Um, And I think in particularly time like now with pandemic being such a thing where so much has shifted for folks. Um, you know, the idea of, you know, do I want to continue to work in the way that I've been working? Um, you hear so much now about women, um, having a hard time balancing right now. Um, and some women leaving the workplace. Um, I don't know that they're looking at what the women are leaving the workplace to do. I mean, maybe right now in the interim, it is to be with, you know, family responsibilities, but there may be a bunch of women who you know, opening up something else that is lucrative, that is impactful, that they can, you know, sustain themselves and their families in a more um, long term and meaningful way might be something worth considering. So, I mean, that, that's to me, what's so impactful about what you shared is life happens and you have choices you can make. And 
what those choices look like may not sometimes be what you even thought for yourself. But I mean, to sustain a a gym for five years is like (laughs) a whole different life, right? A completely different life. Yes. Yeah. So that's fantastic. All the people are different. All the people are new. You're talking about a new set of things. You're dealing with trainers and fitness and, you know, just the, I did it by myself. Right. So everything from contracting with uh, legal to um, building negotiations, to sales, to marketing, to operations, to the type of rubber mats that I should have on the floor. Um, It was all me and it was all it was all new. Like who would, you know, I'd never built a business before and I definitely never done it from scratch. And I never even envisioned that I would do it alone. Um, so really getting involved in all of those different areas and developing somewhat of an expertise because you, when it's your own business and your own money and you're really thinking critically about it, you have to think about every single angle, every single nuance, every single possibility. You have to do scenario planning. So for every function that I just mentioned, there were lots of scenarios. Well, what if we do this? And how about that? And how will this impact that? So there were, there was a lot of, so I was using my skill set in a way because there was a lot of data and data analysis involved and even thinking through all of those functions and what I needed to do to help build a successful business. Um, But it was very empowering. So definitely to your point, nothing I ever would have envisioned. I hadn't even thought about opening a gym. And if someone had said to me when I was 20, oh, that at 45 or you're going to open a gym, I would have thought, what? what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Why on earth would I do that? So I just, it, the life is so interesting and it really helps you to understand how create a path, create a program for yourself, but don't be too rigid. Like don't say, oh, I'll never do this, or that's impossible, or that's unlikely, because sometimes you just get thrown curveballs that turn out to be amazing opportunities for you. Yeah. And then I remember us talking about after that experience and then deciding to get back into analytics, because of that experience, you were like, bring it on. Like, I've run a gym. Like, there's nothing you can (laughs) write about anything, because this experience has empowered me in such a way that there's nothing you can throw at me that I can't figure out or, you know, bring back to you. Exactly. And that's exactly how I felt. Um, When I went back to the, so after five years of running the gym, um, the, actually the woman who I mentioned to you when I first started in financial services, who um, brought me into Morgan Stanley and decided she wanted to go do another role in the firm. She had been off doing a number of different things, one of which was opening a bed and breakfast in, in the Grenadine Islands. And she came back and she said, you know, we're building out this function at um, JP Morgan and, you know, you should think about joining us or you should think about applying. Um, and I said, well, you know, I have this gym. And I'm pretty happy in this gym. And this is a, you know, a new way of life. And I've moved on. And she said, well, maybe you can just consult with us until, you know, we get our footing. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. So I started consulting um, just part-time. And I just really got right back into it. You know, just fell right back into it wherever I left off as if I had never stopped. 
And it was kind of amazing. And she was, she was an amazing um, partner as well. And I thought, wow, it's so much happening here. This is so much fun. And when the time came, she was like, oh, are you sure you don't want to be full time? You know, we could do this full time together again. And I thought, well, my lease was coming up at, in the gym. And the way that business works is really you have to have two or three of them in order to get enough revenue to, that I think would be viable. Right. Um, so my plan was I had bought not only that gym, but several other areas. And my plan was to develop them one by one, like to get one up and running, which I had to develop the second one. So I was going into the process of thinking about what I needed to do in order to develop the second one. I had even started looking for space and everything. Um, and the lease was up on the first one. So I was deciding, should I continue the lease and then start building out the second one? And I just made a decision that I, okay, this was fun. And now I'm going back to financial services. So I let the lease go, sold the first one, sold the territories for the other two and um, went back into financial services full time. Wow. That's like, I love it. I love it. It's like, you know what? I can do this. I can pivot again. Um, I mean, it's, I love what I love about your story is the ability to continue to reimagine and reinvent um, despite whatever's going on and not, you know, feeling like it is, you know, Oh, I shouldn't go back or, Oh, I don't know. Or no, I mean like, this is fun. Someone remembered me and my expertise right. up, asked me to help out. And then now that I've dipped my toe back in and realized, wow, this is just as exciting as I remember it. And I've got a different life now that I can do this. Um, let me do this. So I love that. Um, so I know we've talked about what your next thing looks like. And what I love about your answer is it's not one that I've heard up to this point. Um, everyone talks about, you know, various things that they want to give back. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that. What I love about this podcast is it's what's right for you. It's not right for anybody else. You got to do what's right for you. So what is the next thing on your, you know, sites? What's something you want to do? Uh, in terms of that next act for you, Tiffany? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this for a while now and, and trying to um, figure out how to get myself there. But the goal is really to open a bed and breakfast in the island. And I have been in Jamaica in particular, and I've been thinking about it for probably 15 to 20 years. It has been the thing that I see as my sort of retirement stage or whatever you want to call it. Because, you know, retirement is no longer retirement. People move on to do different things and sometimes they officially retire, but more likely than not these days, they just go do something different. And that's what I think I want to do when I move away from this industry or maybe even while I'm still in this industry. Um, I've, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've been doing research on islands. Sometimes I go that extra step of when I'm visiting someplace to look around at properties and see what's there. And, you know, I have visions in my head around what I want, how I want my um, space to be and what kind of facilities I'll have there and what the rooms will look like. So I've done a lot of thought on it. It's like not even just like some idea that's sparkling in my head. It's, I've done research. I've done, um, I have some, I've done sort of plans of the, like, the grounds, how I would like the grounds to be laid out. And 
I put a fair amount of work into thinking this through, but that is really the next thing that I'm hoping to accomplish on my list. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, you know, it's so funny that you're saying this because I've always thought, you know, like this thing about retirement, I, I don't see myself being one of these um, sitting quietly people. Um, I'm like, I need to get yoga certified. I need to like run a smoothie <laughs> bar. Oh, that's and a good like, one. Do, like, <laughs> because I feel like it's your time now. You don't yes. have to do anything, right? You can do yes. whatever you want to do. Um, and so yeah. those things that you're not having to be doing because of responsibility or having to be the adult or whatever that mm-hmm. means, I love that you're like, I want to open a, a B&B in Jamaica and I have a vision yep. of what that's supposed to look like because that's what it's about. You're supposed to have fun. Yeah. That's right. And speaking of that smoothie bar, one of the, the suggestions that the franchise um, consultant made to me was, I think it's called Menchie's. Um, frozen have, yogurt? Okay. Yes, yes, it was frozen yogurt. And I came, I like that idea. I love frozen yogurt. But that, um, uh, the refrigeration on that is the, like the, what you have to set up in terms of refrigeration was really expensive. So the cost to entry was pretty high, but it was also an exciting idea. Wow. So fun. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up now. And I've got two questions to ask you right before the end. Um, one yep. is to finish this sentence. Inclusion in my industry looks like. Inclusion in my industry looks like people who look and sound like me having a seat at the table and being a part of the game changing process. For sure. Um, and then last question, what does life look like? coming full circle to you? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, coming full circle, life looks like coming full circle. I think it has to do with just being, knowing who I am, being comfortable in my space, understanding my relationships with people, um, being comfortable in that space and my relationships with different people and just you know, just accepting me for who I am, accepting my, my, the positive and the negative and, and, and working with those, um, you know, in the broader context of what I'm trying to accomplish, just like self-acceptance, self-awareness, full circle to me is self-awareness, self-acceptance, recognition of my strengths, recognition of areas that where I need to improve and how I work to, towards doing that. Um, but to me, it's really, it's really more, uh, it's really more internal and um, meaning more focused on how I view myself and how I view myself as a, as a player in the broader world and what I hope to leave as a legacy, you know, in the world. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you for your time. Thank you for thank your you. energy. I been so much just, fun. You know, you're so much fun. I mean, it's <laughs> not every day that I, I feel like your story for the creatives out there. Uh, I feel like I'm a, I'm a, also a kind of a creative, like there's certain creative pursuits, things you enjoy doing that yeah. you sometimes think, oh, you know, how am I going to you know, where do I have an outlet for this? Uh, and right. so what I hear in your story is you can find those places and you can make that happen and you don't have to, you know, squelch that part of yourself. Um, right. You just have to give it some breathing room from time to time so that you can really see it shine. So 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate you. Thank you. you. Alrighty. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. What a wonderful interview today with Tiffany Perkins Munn. She, I enjoyed speaking with her so much because uh, when you think about what it means to have a PhD, I believe she has shifted that and reimagined what it means to be a scholar, a public intellectual, and a practitioner. Uh, when we look at PhDs, we sometimes think, oh, you know, I have to go into academia. Uh, there's no space for me to go anywhere else. And what I loved about her story was reimagining if I can take these skills into a place where that is not their strength, that is not what they have in existence. I have a longer runway. I also get to, you know, really learn how to do this in another setting. She didn't at the time know that's what she was doing. I think that was probably even more exciting because you do sometimes things, you jump into things without knowing. Um, But what I think has been awesome about her story is that she's able to bring her talents to life through application and having it become something within financial services that wasn't there before. Uh, We've been seeing a trend with PhDs lately, and I am, I think, hopeful that if you have a PhD or thinking about pursuing a PhD um, or have wanted to do it, but, you know, just thought, gosh, I'll be stuck in academia and I don't necessarily know that's where I want to go. Um, There's been a host of people who have taken their PhD and really brought it to life. So names that come to mind, Brené Brown, my favorite, she is known for social work and had a viral TED Talk on vulnerability that launched her into the zeitgeist with having all of us know words like shame and courage and daring leadership. She's got a whole host of training that she provides, podcasts books, uh, all from the research that she was doing for the past 20 years. And I think when you look at um, other PhDs like Roxane Gay, who's a New York Times bestselling author, regular contributor to a variety of publications like The Atlantic at the New York Times. She is writing with Black Panther. She is doing all kinds of things, leveraging her English background uh, and her literature background to bring words into life in a new way. Uh, We also have, you know, Adam Grant, organizational psychologist, talking about work and how we work, taking his research and applying it again with major Fortune 500 organizations. So if you're a scholar, someone who loves to learn, someone who enjoys doing research, don't feel like you have to be stuck and mired in academia. I think it's wonderful if that is where you end up and you've figured out how to do the tenure track. However, if that's not your jam or you just are feeling like this isn't the way forward for you, don't feel confined as a means of having a variety of more modalities available for you to get your work and your research and your passions out there. Uh, Every year they give out the MacArthur Genius Awards and more and more academics are winning that award because they are finding a way to take their scholarly material and make it real in our world. So that was, I think, huge for me in terms of what she brought forth. Uh, Life events. She had a major life event with the death of her husband and her five-year-old then, you know, wanting to make sure she was secured and safe. And so much of who we are uh, happens when life events happen. It 
forces us to question and reinforce our values. It forces us to prioritize what matters. Uh, what I loved about what she said is that, you know, she really needed to be sure that she was there for her daughter and work wasn't going to allow her to do that and to show up in the way that she wanted to. Since values of family were so important, she decided, you know what, I'm going to have to figure out something new uh, in order for me to be able to be there in the way that I need to. And so what I would love to, I'd say, offer with that particular story is, is your work allowing you to be who you want to be in your personal life? I think oftentimes we feel like we have to you know, show up in such a way that we are burning the candle at both ends and not really doing well in either place. And so asking for what you need and figuring out what makes sense to move forward because your family obligations, your personal pursuits, your overall personal satisfaction are meaningful and are real and should never be discounted for the sake of work uh, or a job or because I'm on this career path. And I think so much of what we've learned over time has been just suck it up and, and go with it. And I think there may be times to do that, but I think there are also times you need to step back and say, is this really working for me long-term? Is this allowing me to be who I need to be right now? Um, and no two journeys are the same, look the same. So don't feel like you have to do anything because someone else is doing it, but do it because it's what works for you. So what I loved about her story was her deciding, you know what, I need to do something else in order to be there for my family in this time. Uh, the third thing that I thought was really awesome was when she talked about deciding to become an entrepreneur, she looked into franchising as a framework. I think when we think about entrepreneurship, sometimes we think we've got to go out there on our own and start our own thing from scratch. And I think sometimes that works. But if you don't have the time and the um, effort available to come up with a business plan, to create a model for yourself, I love that she found a franchise consultant to get out there and help her find a franchise model that worked for her so that she could quickly you know, transition into something else and allow her to, again, get the work part done, but also have the family obligations met. So franchising as a model, because I myself I think we all hear about franchising something. But the idea that there's someone who actually this is what they do and they can help you find a means of creating a franchise, I mean, that is fantastic. And even I'd say more exciting about this idea of franchising is that you can always return to what you were doing before if you want to. I think sometimes when we feel like we go on entrepreneurial journeys, we have to stay as entrepreneurs. And with anything, you can go back and forth. You can vacillate to what works. She still had her relationships and her connections. They still remember her and the value of her work. They called her back to do initially consulting. And then she decided, you know what? I'm still actually very passionate and interested in this work. It's still very much something that I feel like speaks to me. And she decided to pivot back into it. And so there's no one journey. There's no one path. You have to do what works and what's right for you. And I think her story encapsulated that just so well. So the three things that I would say I took away from Tiffany's interview was having a PhD means that you can take scholarly material and basically become a practitioner. Um, secondly, life events are not supposed to have you feeling stuck, but have you 
look at where you want to be and what you want to do. And then you can go about figuring out how you want to make that happen for yourself. Um, and thirdly, entrepreneurship through franchising. You may not have the business model already, but if you can find something that works for you so that you can leverage that existing business model, leverage a lot of those tools and makes it easier for you to jump into entrepreneurship by having some sort of a support system available. So this was a wonderful episode this week, and I hope you, again, can take some of these nuggets and apply them to um, your life. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.